Hey there, I'm John. Here's my friend Johnny. What's up? We're back for another episode of Talk About That. Dude, we have been so consistent. I hope the listeners appreciate that. I don't like to pat myself on the back, but look out. It's because I have I'm terribly inflexible. <laughs> I can't reach my back, John. Could you scratch for me? I can't do it. I mean, you were having some fascinating conversations right before we pushed record today. Uh, no, we weren't. No, we weren't. Uh, we were talking about you playing racquetball with me. Well, we gotta drive, I don't think it'll happen. we got to drive all the way out to a place called the Jimmy Floyd Center, which is, I don't know, where is that? Watertown? It's in Lebanon, John. Um, Cookville. Home somewhere. of Cracker Barrel. It's Seattle. It's a long way from here. For the uninitiated, Cracker Barrel's headquarters is in Lebanon, Tennessee, the original Cracker Barrel. Was it called near- Cracker Barrel originally? It was. Huh. And you know, do you know where it is? It's the it's the one off of... Uh... Nope. It's not there anymore. You know when you go off 109 exit and there's that old burned out orange building that's been painted? It looks like a package store that went out of business and it's been nothing for years. Yeah. That's the first Cracker Barrel. The one right near your street where you uh-huh. turn there? Yeah. That's the original Cracker Barrel. And they've not done anything with it. I think it should be a national landmark. Yeah, you should like go and make it into something. I know. I'm going to. You know to. what? We're, ta- we're going to the airwaves. And we're gonna, we're calling at Cracker Barrel, please. If we're known for anything, it's yeah. for grassroots efforts that change the the course of humanity, such as Cracker mm-hmm. Barrel. I actually really like Cracker Barrel. Cracker Barrel. <laughs> I like that. Where did grassroots? Where did that come from? That whole etymology of grassroots. Well, I'm assuming the roots of the grass. So it's that means it's at ground level. I'm losing patience with you. It's yeah. fine. Sorry. You're going to look it up, aren't you? No, I'm not. I don't care to know. You know what? That's very disciplined of you. Thank you. Just to sit here and not know. I don't care yeah. enough about it. That's great. We are watching West Wing the other night. Right. And there's a lot of, that's a grassroots, like that's the thing is the campaign. You're in the campaign trail. Right. Right. Meaning like regular everyday people are the people who built your base and who. Right. Are it's your, a bottom up movement from the people, not a, a top down. Populism. From, yes. If you will. If you will. And I think you will. Yeah. We're watching, and uh, there's a name that comes up from a guest star on that episode named Rene Estevez. Okay. And that caused me, this is one of those moments I could not stop. And you just, wanted to know if that was Martin Sheen's other son or other daughter. And it was. And my wife's like, no, because we right. just assumed it was like a like that, like that there was a, a divorce as the reason for the two names and all that. It makes no sense, though, for yeah. him to have a son. But anyway, turns out his real name yeah. is... Carlos Estevez. Martin Sheen's real name? Yes. How did he get to he, Martin Sheen from Carlos he, Estevez? It's a fascinating, fascinating process. <laughs> don't don't sell it. Don't oversell it. <laughs> <laughs> so he starts, he wants to get into acting. Yeah. You know, he comes from this, uh, actually, his, mm, mm-hmm. okay, Spanish, like Spain. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. One parent's from Spain, the other's from Ireland. So, okay, he's Irish, Spanish. Living in New York, I think. And he wants to get into acting, and everywhere he goes, it's like even when he calls and gives his he's name, getting, Carlos he's getting, Estevez, yeah, he's getting profiled. By the basically. time he shows up, even for the tryout, the part's already given away. Right. So he decided, and there was he, there's two people's names he borrowed from to call and try to get the part as Martin Sheen, and sure enough, right, he was able to. So Charlie. Then so everyone else is Estevez in the family, but yeah. Charlie then changed his as well. Maybe, wait, sorry, not Martin. He's not Carlos. He's, mm. Carlos Estevez is Charlie Sheen. Oh, okay. Martin Estevez is, it's just another, it's another, I can't remember, can't remember it. But anywho. Rodrigo. It's something, yeah, something like that. So he basically whitewashed himself and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, like his driver's license, everything all still says Estevez. Interesting. He just goes by Martin Sheen. Fascinating character. Okay, here's another one. Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. When you when you become an actor, you have to put your name in the database of whatever, and so you go to like register your. Tr- he is Martin Sheen's other son. No, okay, he's not. He is. His name is Ultra Sheen. So that's a weird one. Uh, no, from Minwax. No, he uh, his name was Michael Douglas. That's his real given name, and there already was a Michael Douglas. No way. So he had the choice of like his middle initial, like what Michael J. Fox did, because there was already a Michael Fox when he went down to whatever to register with uh, SAG, Screen mm-hmm. Actors Guild. Yeah. So you just kind of you kind of change up your name, and so he went ahead and legally changed his name to one of his favorite actresses' last name, which is Diane Keaton. Wow. So that's how he became Michael Keaton. 
And I believe that's true. And somebody's going to Google me and correct me, but I believe that's true. Did you know mm. that I've almost started going by John C. Driver for the exact same reason? Really? This is a true story. In fact, I'm going to call Amazon soon. So there is a John Driver. Who, Who's a talented author. Who is. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> that's actually in my bio if you go to my website. <laughs> That, so there's another John Driver who is a yeah. Mennonite theologian oh, who wow, lives in South America, has written some books like to the 80s. I think he wrote one as recently in the 2000s that's like the yeah. spiritual atonement of the church. Like there's, there's a, they're very weighty yeah. topics. And is he – so if he's Mennonite – so that's so funny because you just wrote the endorsement book, which is all about how to live with technology. And right. meanwhile, he's like – he thinks you're the devil. So if he gets your emails – I don't know. Like he might be getting your emails. I know this. You think I, he gets emails? I went to check on the endorsement stuff on Amazon the other day, and I typed in endorsement, and yeah. it came up. And guess whose book came right below it? Um, so sound. So now Amazon is connecting the wrong John Driver to to this. And uh-huh. when I when people first started tweeting about the book, somebody tweeted uh, in a thread. They were like, "My guess is this is not the same John Driver who's yeah. a Mennonite theologian." Like they had picked up on it. So I actually you have, didn't have the ceremonial robes in your profile pic or whatever they wear. No, what do they wear? Homemade clothes? Mennonites? Mennonites? Aren't they, they like, like Amish? Aren't they? They're Amish like though. I think some Mennonites are more. They use technology still. It's or possible. They it sounds like an, actually. It sounds like a lifestyle I really love. To be, to really? Be quite, uh, just I, go, I think I would love to disconnect. Just go off the grid. I think that would be great. I think I would go off the grid. We talked about this at lunch. I would go off the grid if I thought everybody would go with me. Right. But I'm. It's the fear of missing out. I'm like, well, what if civilization just is. Yeah. We're going to go on, and I'm just going to be like the guy that's out in the – I'm Ted Kaczynski in a lodge somewhere that I've built by hand. Yeah, but you don't know what you don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, true. And I guess I don't, have, really to, I don't be, have to bomb people. Since, I could just be right, off the right. grid. You don't have to make – that's a choice you were already making. Uh, so, I'm not but, <laughs> but this this idea that – how do you know what you're missing out on? Because you would never know what it was. I think I wish that I'd never known – that we just lived in. A, I think I wish we just still lived in the civilization that we had when we were kids, because we yeah, wouldn't know. We, we wouldn't know that we're missing out on everything. Yeah, and we'd just be like, oh, "This is fine." Did you see the video of the seventeen-year-olds trying to dial the rotary phone? I heard about it. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, I heard it's about so it. Ma- and it makes you feel so old. Yeah, like you laugh at them and you're like, "Oh, we're old." Well, there's beepers in West Wing. Yeah, and then there's some new Disney show called Sydney to the Max, where she's with her single dad, and they keep flipping back to him at the same age. So they're like, it's like oh, a dual right. episode, yeah. and so like when she's getting a cell phone, he's getting a beeper. So like, it's really kind of funny because it shows all yeah. the stuff. It's the '90s. Uh, he's getting. He gets the beeper and he's so excited about it. But the only person that ever pages him is his mom. You know, yeah. check in every two minutes, and he hates it because he's being tracked now. And I'm, I'm, it's like. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's that's what we all live with now. So. When I used to do Side Splitters Comedy Club in Knoxville, they used to because the, the, when you do comedy clubs, they come and make announcements right before they bring out the first comedian, which I was hosting back then, so I would have been the first one out. And they'd say, like, "Please silence all your cell phones, beepers, and children, or whatever." And then the guy would say, "And if you still have got a beeper, the '80s called. They want that sucker back, you know." Nice. And I was like. Mm. They, you know, I love that when people say, like, the 80s called. They're like, how can a decade call you? <laughs> you know? Feudal China called. They said, hang on to that vase. It's going to be worth something. <laughs> like, it doesn't make sense for a, a generation to call you. But but they use that expression in other things. Like, hey, the no, ocean they, called. And you're running they're running out of the the Hey, jerks, the jerk store. <laughs> they're running out of you. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. that's, what's the difference? You're their number one bestseller. Oh, man. We can't say the next line. <laughs> just have to be a Seinfeld fan to know where we were headed. <laughs> that's the say, thing. Did you say we were war headed? Where we're war headed. Wow. So that's funny. Like when you did your you did your big thing on the you did uh, a lot of sermon, pop culture illustrations in one of the last sermons I saw you give, and you were talking about the office, and you had to make all these qualifying. Like now, listen, I'm not endorsing everything that happens on the office, <laughs> even though we know everybody out there watches the office. Right. It's just funny. Yeah, I try not to do too many disclaimers, but occasionally. No, it's so I understand Dude, why I you watch, did it because you'll get emails like, "Are you vouching for you know?" Right. I watched season one the other day, and I watched. Um, oh, Joni, help me! I don't know the um, diversity day. Yes. Oh, I see how I knew. See how connected we are. I was very uncomfortable. Oh, it's the best part. Like, that's that's the point of that show, though. That's when it really was diving yeah. into the uncomfortable stuff. Yeah, like, like first, Michael was not lovable then. He was just an oaf. Yes. They really wrote him to be more sympathetic as it went on. He did. He he grew on you because in the yeah. beginning, 
And that's the one where Kelly slaps him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, he even for them, like, they create this, this yeah. universe where he goes too far there. Because then he goes, he goes, there, that's it. Now you know what it's like to be a minority. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After she slaps like him. Like, she, the, yeah. Yeah, she, it's really funny. And uh, I like uh, that they wrote a more sympathetic. That's the thing, like, the last two seasons, they really had to tie up the bows on everybody's yeah. story, and they made it very kind of schmaltzy. Mm-hmm. But when I watch those, it makes me tear up. Like, I'm such a sap I'm the Mark. I'm the guy they wrote that for. They wrote Dwight to pull over Angela with the megaphone and propose to her. And even though he doesn't know the kid's his and all of that, like they did that to make you feel good about Dwight. Yeah. And I did not care. I was glad they did it. Like I'm that guy. I don't care. I don't want Dwight to go out being a jerk. But don't you think though, there's a chance that everybody that they, that they knew beforehand by, I don't know, testing the audience or whatever that, Even if they weren't someone like you, as yeah. you say, that everybody wanted that. A little no, bit. a lot of people talk about it. And they're like, yeah. I don't like the way they wrote so-and-so, and that's why. And it wasn't, you know, once they made Michael this and that, it wasn't the same. I'm like, I don't understand you. What's wrong with you? Ensemble casts are so fascinating to me. So I got to keep going back. So I kept reading on West Wing the other night. I, yeah. I just, I, I'm a little. So did you know that Rob Lowe left the show in season four because of contract stuff? So everybody at that point, he was making $75,000 an episode. Yeah. It wasn't like it was some big – It wasn't. he was He was very grateful, loved the show, knew it was right, a part right. of history, all those things. But here's the deal. The original show, one, they didn't want him and Martin Sheen because they didn't want to have two movie stars. They wanted an ensemble cast. Yeah. But Martin Sheen was supposed to be a side character. It was supposed to be a show about the White House staff. Yeah. And Rob Lowe was going to be the main character. Huh. He was going to be the centerpiece of it all. And so wow. then when they got everybody in, and, and first of all, two movie stars both wanted the, the, the part that they were offered, or they, you know, so, so they ended up keeping both of them. And then at Martin Sheen played so well in all of the pre-stuff that they just kept increasing the president's role in it all. Yeah. And then uh, there was some other lady in the very big, the, the, the girl from the Cutting Edge uh, movie, the ice skating movie. You just referenced the Cutting Edge. And I can't remember, remember her name. <laughs> well, you, you know her name. Uh, hold on. You're going to know it. Uh, hold on. There's no chance you won't know it. She was in Mystic Pizza, too, I think. Hang on. What's her name? Mm. I don't know. I'm glad we're not reaching for our phones. Guys, this is discipline. We're not its, doing it. At its highest level. I refuse. I want to be uninformed. It wasn't Moira Kelly, was it? Moira Kelly? Is that what it was? Moira? Maybe it was. Moira. Moira? Moira? It's M-O-I-R-A. Moira. Moira. Moira? Like uh, French? Is it French? Moira? <laughs> we just lost all of our listeners. <laughs> We're being idiots. Anywho, I think it was Moira. It was, Moira. It was, it was Moira, John. There you go. It's Moira. Yeah, I like to say Moira. It's got something in there. So, anywho, Moira. Moira. <laughs> They wrote her out of the show, yeah. And like Sam Seaborn, who was Rob Lowe's character, yeah. like eventually four years in, just felt like he felt like you know he wasn't. You know, I don't think he was like saying I want to be the star. Just this wasn't what he signed up for. But everyone else was getting raises, yeah, and not him because they already paid him so much. So they're making he was making seventy five thousand episode, but the others were coming up, but they weren't increasing his because they were all still below him. I said, right. I'm sure, Marcy. Anyway, it's just fascinating the ensemble cast now. And like the the lady that plays Josh Lyman's, it's she's uh, Donna plays mm-hmm. Josh Lyman's secretary. There's that whole you know tension between them and everything. She's one of the best characters of the, of the whole show. Yeah, she was a waitress who come into she came in to read from Myra Kelly's part, and she didn't get it. And you they can't were like, say Moira, can you? It's not Moira. <laughs> it's got to be Moira. <laughs> Moira. Oh. Anyway, so she came in and they were like, well, we got this other part. You're not going to get this one. You got this other little part if you want to even read for it, you know. And then she became one of the bigger characters in the show. I just love the, that – back to your point about The Office, the evolution yeah. of characters shows good writing in my opinion. So. I like it and, and that's, that, I think that's what made me – I still defend those last two seasons of The Office because of that. Because the other characters, they had to kind of think on their feet and give Kevin like an entire episode. And they wouldn't have done that if Carell had stayed around. Yeah, I think that's interesting. When they have to do that – and some would say, overall, it's a weaker show. And I would say, yes, compared to the other seasons. But if you just watched that, and that was their only experience, you would still enjoy it. Well, they kept trying to fill Steve Carell's void, you know, with dropping all these other actors into the show. I think that's what yeah. bugged me a little bit. Like, right. Robert California. I liked Robert California. You liked him. I didn't. <laughs> but it's the second viewing. Like, I went back and I've watched him again, and yeah. I like those. Because they made him a totally different character. He's yeah. this manipulative guy. Yeah. Uh, and he's... 
he's a sociopath basically, and it's yeah. just interesting to see like he's not a nincompoop like Steve Carell was. He's right. the opposite. He's like he's getting away with doing nothing, but they think like is he a genius? They don't know. Right. <laughs> they don't know. It's kind sure. of my whole tactic, Johnny. That's I'm, great. Tactic. I just want to leave people wondering: Am yeah. I? Am I oh, some man. sort of supervillain or a genius? Who knows? So uh, we have a question from a viewer. We didn't get to questions last time. Oh, do we okay. have our Ask Johnny? I want to get to this early because you we always to forget that. to do so, it. So yeah, let's go right now then to our Ask John and Johnny segment. Yeah. <laughs> or you, <laughs> you said, it's not the girl from Ipanema. I'm really struggling with the words today. Mara Kelly was actually the original artist who did the girl from Ewa Padima. Ewa. <laughs> okay, our question today comes from ESJ1181. Were there 1,180 other ESJs? He just was like, look, just fall in line. All right, so here's this question. Um Could Johnny tell us about a time he really bombed on stage and what that was like? Mm. And to John, how do you deal with writer's block? Okay. You want to go first? Writer's block. Is that like something it's like 30 something writers S- go SPF? Through. Is that like a um, – oh, is this thing on? Speaking of bombing. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, you and I were talking about this but before we began recording. Um, I don't deal with a lot of writer's block in terms of when I'm collaborating because, yeah. like you said, there's already another story that I'm I'm – engaging myself into usually i have a you know a proposal a a starting point right i know what the goal is so i just kind of now i do get into moments where i feel like it's stale or i'm not you know doing my best work but i just kind of press through and know that in the edits you know you're, you're trying to create a whole i think that um so i do write songs some Poetic writing on a that, that's shorter is much more difficult, yeah. you know, because there's such that economy of words. I don't, you know, everything has to count. You can't be stale, you know, on a song, or you're just going to blow it. Um, and so, we definitely fell into ruts when we were writing songs together. Oh yeah, because you'd say like, oh, have we done this chord structure before, or have we done this? Yeah, this kind of it's like a trope in uh, in movies or TV shows. They call it a trope, meaning it's a very familiar. Yeah, like the the police sergeant saying, "I'm too old for this." Yeah, whatever. Like that's a very old, and so it's very familiar. But it's also you can you can get successful on old tropes like that because it catches some familiar thing yeah. inside. Yeah, it's like a yeah. nostalgic. No, it's so true. Sunday we did a song called "The Lord Is My Salvation," which is like a big. It's a Getty song, and Shane and Shane and them do it. You know, yeah. and the chorus goes to this five. Who is like the Lord? And Dane was yesterday going, I fell into a burning ring. It's the same exact. <laughs> it's like same melody and progression as Burning Ring of Fire. Interesting. You know, and, and so at, at any rate. It's a different ring of fire when you're talking about theology. You don't want to. You, you don't, don't want to fall into that ring of fire. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. There's no escape. Oh, my goodness. Um, but the. Uh, to answer the question, I mean, now if I'm writing a book of my own, you know, yeah. I certainly get there. I think the only thing to do for me is I'm not the all night guy in terms of writing. Some people want to stay up and, and stay in that place. If I know I've hit a wall, I go to sleep. Really? Yeah. I'm like, I'd you rather fight get through. Up. I don't think I'd, of you as somebody who would just fight through until you. I've learned over the years that me sitting there like head you know, kind of bobbing because I'm 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 not gonna do something good there. It'd be better to go rest, yeah. even go watch something, like get my brain kind of cleansed, yeah, yeah, and just kind of be human, and then start again when it's early, and and not worry as much about the deadline as you worry about. Uh, if you worry more about the content than the deadline, in my opinion, then the deadline usually takes care of itself. Hmm. Um, you you know, guys tweeting this? This is tweet worthy, guys. Oh my goodness, worry so, about the content, not the deadline. And then in terms of again for a book with prose. The good news is, even if you don't feel like it's your strongest stuff, you're writing 50,000 words. Like, every word's not going to be as strong as the other. So there is room for filler. You, yeah. you don't want anything to feel like filler while you're reading it. But sometimes right. I'll think, oh, this sucks. This is not going well. And right. then I'll get good comments back from an editor like, oh, well, I liked this section. And so, yeah. you know, it's just – you just really don't know till you get through it. Don't- well, I used to say that about what you do versus what I do, whereas I'm – there's an economy of words with comedy. And uh, there used to be a, a famous comedian, Rodney Dangerfield, and he, his pattern, What there's a legend of him where he would go to the club every night and do a joke with one less word. Yeah. He would make sure it got a laugh. Then he would go one less word every night until it didn't get the laugh. Then he would just go back a day right? until it got that laugh. It's just kind of an interesting simplified way that he would do it. But 
And I don't know if he did that every time, but he's, he was known for one-liners and quick, you know, whatever. And uh, But I would say the more that I do, like, one-hour shows and 90-minute shows that I'm doing now, uh-huh. and I've talked to other comics about it, there's a similar path in that everything doesn't have to crush hard. It's almost like you want to give the crowd, not a break, but there needs to be hills and valleys in your set. Not that, like, well, he went into a well there and didn't get big laughs. But there needs to be almost a catch-your-breath kind of joke and then a take-your-breath-away kind of joke. So if you put all your big grenades that you have all together, you can wear an audience out. Oh, absolutely. You can fatigue them, and then they're, they're, they're full. It's almost like a ground getting saturated with water. Yeah, and that sounds like somebody. That sounds like a comedian defending his unfunny act. But I swear to you, that's not the truth. There are times. <laughs> there are times even in sermons where somebody will say, "I'm going to have to go back because because I put so much like big time bomb dropping content yeah. in kind of each sentence, you know. And that's why stories are so important. I, yeah. I got to do better at that. But that you know, you can't just you're, if you're just get up there and you're just reading a CS Lewis quote followed by, you know, uh, an AW Tozier quote followed yeah. by like you're just you're dropping all yeah. of this They're like still chewing on really it. weighty not, yeah. things in that you know, you can't just process. I would say from a writing standpoint to not don't trust yourself completely, but also don't distrust yourself completely. Yeah. Now, that only works if you're writing all the time. Like, if you're writing for the first time, don't trust yourself. <laughs> but if you're writing a lot and, and it feels like that you, you kind of have a sense of your identity and your flow, yeah. then don't distrust everything. Like, sometimes let your editor, let let somebody else read. It may be better than you think because yeah. for me it could be that I'm just – I'm tired or I'm having a bad day or – you know, I'm stressed about a deadline or something else. I'm distracted. It doesn't necessarily mean, though, that that muscle is not still working. You know, yeah. You just you just don't always feel it. You can't go off your feelings, is what I guess what I'm saying. So, yeah, um, that's that's great. I, I I'm I was thinking of that too when I saw that question. I was like, well, John wrote for a long time for you have a other person's voice you're thinking of, and you have their story that you're telling. So there's like this material that's built in, which is great. But then you also were writing the whole time you were writing your own stuff. So, But you didn't ever seem blocked there either to me. Like you just always seem like somebody who wrings the most that you possibly could out of your gift, which I've always respected about you. Oh, thanks, man. I, I don't know. I I really – part of this is you know, the way I'm made, you know. Yeah. I, I don't see I, – I don't take notice of success very well. I only take notice of – failure and and downsides like if i look back i don't remember success yeah i only remember the failure it's just sort of the way i'm made you know that sounds like a miserable person it is you have to remind me like hey you know what that actually went pretty well oh that's right it did you know because i'm gonna remember what i could have done better you know there's several books on the shelf we're looking at right now that probably Mm. no one will ever read ever read and and then at the end of the day their value is not in their content because i wouldn't want anyone to read them right now like I don't, yeah. they're not bad. They're not gonna they're like horrible backwards. But I feel like what I would say now is a lot sharper, and that mm-hmm. makes me even see. Then I get inside my own head, and I think, well, yeah, but what if ten years from now I'm even that much more sharp? Yeah. So when can you ever actually write if you're right. always going to be improving? So yeah, there was an there was a story on the Onion, uh, which is a satirical website. If you don't know that by now, if you don't know what the Onion is by now, I don't know what to do for you. But <laughs> it was uh, about it said first time author waste his life story on first book and and i got the joke immediately <laughs> yeah of like you're not a good writer yet and yeah. yet you're going to tell this story that's your story you should wait <laughs> you know? so i wrote i wrote a book called no arrivals okay and and not to go into a long story but if you're interested in writing this is a very fascinating story i got signed by an agent after i wrote the reggie Daz book yeah I won't say who the agent was, but i was dude i was so excited I mean, he's a real agent in the industry he was actually the agent for my favorite author Mm. So that was why it was such a big deal. My favorite author at the time had we we were able to kind of connect. He said, "Like you need to talk to my agent." And so I got a meeting set up. Sure enough, the guy's like, "Man, I need to sign you. You need to do this." I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And he's like, "Hey, I want you to bring me what's on your heart, like what's raw and real and this and that. I want you to write it all." I was like, "Bro, it's big. Like I don't know. I've been working on this for years." He's like, "Bring it all." So I went and spent like six months and wrote mm-hmm. everything. And and so a, no- a normal book is fifty thousand words to sixty. It was like 150,000 words. It's too many, John. It was. But I knew – but I did what he said. I told him so we could cut it or know what we're looking at. But I just want to get it all out. you know. So I got it all out. And I, In fact, it's right there. I keep it there for posterity's sake. It's, yeah. in a, it's in a little box. 
the manuscript is huge. Mm-hmm. And I went to meet with the guy in Green Hills, the fancy Panera in Green Hills, and you're going to sit down and like it's going to be this <laughs> oh, fancy you know, Panera. Yeah, <laughs> everything in Green Hills is fancy. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Yeah, and so like he didn't get it, mm. and he was so excited before he was like it was like he hadn't heard anything I'd said, and so the. Two weeks later, I get an email. It's like, hey, this is too long. And I don't get it. And so good luck with your future. Like, that was it. He dropped me oh, man. immediately. And it was like a, I mean, it was a devastating blow. It felt like I was being vulnerable and put myself out there, you know, with someone and someone you could trust. That's what an agent or an editor, right. you show them the parts that aren't good so that they can help make it better. I mean, that's the idea. You got to show somebody who can't impress. It's like having a coach. And so it was like a coach cut you after they signed you to the team. Hey, I'm going to give you this scholarship. Nah, you know what? You're gone. And so it killed me. And I ended up that, that book, I ended up taking it by myself to, it was, it was actually the United Methodist publishing house. Yeah. And at the same, and, and, and I just, I started being my own agent and they liked it and they wanted to make three books out of it. Okay. Yeah. And they released it once. It was a really interesting idea. We're going to release these three books at once, but you read them, you know, and so. It was Everybody like, wants a trilogy. It was kind of like this. Yeah, you but, thought you were Star Wars. <laughs> but you don't release them at once usually. But yeah. it was an interesting idea. And that was right when I signed with my current agent who I've been with for so long and who's such a, a close friend and, yeah. and has helped me. And that's right when the Tim Hawkins book came along. I'll never forget. This is back to what you said about your first book and your story. Yeah. He said to me on the phone, he said, "We, I just don't know. If this is the first real John Driver book yeah. that you're going to want to put out, I think it's fine. Is this really though? Yeah. And it and it it didn't scare me, but it gave me like that clarity. Like you know what, the first you only get one shot to yeah. make some of that first impression, which ended up being a funny book about the avid endorsement, <laughs> my yeah. first like true solo. Right. Even though I got ten others, but we turned down the deal. It was it was not a. I think it was it was well. The people were very gracious. You're to like, offer look, it. you can throw all this money at me, but there, I have under advisement of counsel. There was no money. That was the thing. <laughs> That's what I think. It's easy, it's easy yeah. to turn down a yeah. free book. It deal. was. It yeah. was. But I mean, they were going to print it and put yeah. it out, and I was, I was very grateful. I thought know. it was going to be a cool story where you became hugely successful, and you go back and rub it in the face of that guy who. <laughs> Isn't that your dream? Come on, John. Oh, absolutely. Inside of my inside of my bad self, like it's in there. No, I don't I, have like I don't have that story, but I have a similar story that I, I didn't throw it in the guy's face, but I had a you know this story, but. I when I was starting to do comedy, I had a guy who wanted to represent me. I was nobody. And so I think I set up the meeting, which is never what you want to do. Right. Like if you're chasing the agent, yeah. you're going to get a bad deal. So sure enough, he wanted all my contacts and all my leads that I'd worked in the past three years on my own. And I was like, what's this about? And I realized now that what he wanted was so he could shop these to his other clients and yeah. he could get them gigs. Which, by the way, is what that guy wanted. He he wanted Reggie Dabbs. That's why why he was talking. He was using you. So that's what this guy was. And so then I was like, okay. So he got me one thing, one or two things. And one of them was 2010. So I'd been doing comedy a year and a half, two years. It was my first fly trip. I was going to, you know, Chicago. And then we were going to rent a car. And I was with another three comics. We were doing these shows, two shows. And I was only going to make like, he goes, you're going to, he goes, what you would make is $400. It's like, I'm a real comedian. Like I was, oh, yeah. So we get done with the shows. Well, that was the weekend of the floods uh, here in Nashville. So I couldn't fly home. This is 2010, so I, right? Yeah. So I had to stay. It was in May of 2010. So I had to stay in Chicago overnight at like one of those. You call to get the rate and everybody's taking yeah. all the rooms. So I paid like $200 to get a hotel in, <laughs> in South Side of Chicago and, uh, with this other comedian. And the night before, when it was time to settle up, uh, the guy who was his ambassador on the trip, who was the kind of the agent of the agent, gives me my check, and it was for like $212. And I go, so I email the guy. I go, well, what's going on? He's like, well, I said we were targeting $400. Wow. I go, no, I have the email. It says here. And then he basically weasels his way out of it. And so literally, like, when I started getting, I don't want to say bigger, but when I started getting more bookings, that guy came back to the table. And he was just like, hey, we want, and I was still representing myself. He was like, hey, let's uh, talk, and I'd love to take you to the next level. And I was like, I'm good. And I don't think that guy ever really understands like, right. that that's the reason. Like, it, literally, he probably cost himself thousands and thousands of dollars in commissions for my future. Because yeah. I would have signed with that guy. Yeah. If, but, he, but he did me wrong, and I was just like, I can't trust you. And I, I never went to him and said, aha! But, I right. mean, essentially, that's what it was because I just – once you burn me, I'm just like, integrity is huge with me. Like if we lose money together and we just, it didn't happen or I bombed or whatever. Look, okay. 
But if I'm doing everything and you're doing, and, but if I find out you're taking money from me, like, yeah. how can I ever? No, it's so true. Man, the guys I work with now, I mean, literally are so, they have so much integrity. They, they are trying to protect me yeah. and they're trying to advance me. And it's not just, they don't need me. <laughs> they have way bigger. That's what you want. Way big authors, way much, much more successful authors. The than best relationship you can have with an agent, if you're thinking of getting entertainment or writing or anything, is the best possible relationship <laughs> is when they don't need you and you don't need them. Because then there's no manipulation. Yeah. Like if I don't really. I need them. <laughs> well, I'm saying like, but, but you're a writer outside of them now. Like you, ha- you have done things now where you could shop yourself to yeah. other agencies if you wanted to. I just hate that part. But. I know, but I'm saying like, it's not this whole, like you're calling them every five minutes. Hey, did you find more work? Right. And they're not calling you every five minutes going, do you making new things? Right. Like it's, they've got other clients, you've got other options and it's this, it's like symbiotic. Yeah. Yeah. That call happens about every five weeks (laughs) begging what happened you hearing anything no it 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 is a and i think that's true not just with professional relationships i mean look everyone's gonna let you down we're not saying people don't let you down Mm. and even someone may make a mistake that this is an integrity mistake and that's something we really talk about in relationships a lot look it's not really that you don't there are things the consequences are dire you know if you if you cross certain lines but my question always is, is like, if that dude would have come back to you yeah. and said, you know what, man, that was a shady move. Yeah, if he'd owned it. Yeah, just yeah. own it. Like, own it. Right. And I can do it. It may still not work with you, but there's a lot more to be said. Yeah. I'll just say this, and then we got to get to your bombing story. But, um, you know, the first real ministry job I had, you know, man, we're just being, we're just telling all the stories. We are. Today. This is like, mm, this yeah. is some, we're giving all the, well, what is it called? All the tea. We're getting yeah. all the tea today. <laughs> First real ministry job I had in East Tennessee where I was actually on payroll. And I was full-time teaching. I was still in grad school at UT. And, and, and man, I became a youth pastor to uh, just some incredible kids. And, and it was a very small church. And, again, I'm working a full-time job. And we stayed there four years. And at the end, I got fired. Yeah. And I never was told why. Like, I, never, I was never told why. And that, and it hurt. And then, we, but it was it was fine. We ended up here. I'm kind of a not sit in your pain kind of guy. I've learned to be healthier. Mm-hmm. I, I should sit in pain a little more. But I'm more like, well, what's next? You know, like let's this hurts too bad. Let's go. You know, let's yeah. go on to the next thing and 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 just keep going. And, and God had all these plans and took care of us. Two years later, yeah. Two years later, that pastor asked to meet me at. Cracker Barrel. This is the full circle. Wow, this is where in, the healing happens. In Mount Juliet, yeah. Not the old one that's, yeah. The, no, that's not a... And at first I was like, I don't want to go. Like, what's the point? Like, I was happy here, you yeah. know, and, 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 but I, I agreed to it. And I sat down with him and he wept. Oh, man. And asked for my forgiveness and told me, I still never heard the reason why. He just said somebody had said something about me that wasn't true. And he basically listened to the wrong people and, yeah. and made a mistake and asked me to forgive him. And I was like, I mean, it meant so much to me. I didn't, sure, I yeah. didn't need it, you know. But to this day, you know, I think that's just kind of the essence of, of Christianity. Right. Like, well, I mean, I already had forgiven him. I didn't, I didn't need that. But in terms of our alignment as as people of faith, we don't look alike, sound alike, all those things. But you know what? That's what makes us. That's what makes what we believe to be different and unique. Is yeah. He had he thought well enough of what he believes to not just leave it out there, yeah. but came and said, Hey, I blew it. And I was like, well, I appreciate you saying that. I absolutely forgive you. And, and, you know, and, and now that had this moment to rest and to settle. Anyway, I just remind you of that story. As well, well, yeah, that's the CS Lewis thing about, um, you know, uh, to have a right to do something is not the same as being right and doing it. So like you could have a right to be mad and hold grudges and, yeah. But that's not the same thing as being right. Like, you know, you may have a right under whatever the U.S. Constitution to just sit in your pain and hold every grudge. And, yeah. But it's not good for you. And it's not necessarily the right thing as a believer. Like, we have a different standard. Well, isn't bitterness, uh, I forget what the quote is, you know, bitterness is like slowly poisoning yourself. Yeah, you're drinking poison hoping they die. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah. And like that, that way you said it was way better. Whenever, <laughs> well, whenever I teach on, whenever I teach on a Sunday morning, that's what I usually teach on because it's kind of so close to the bone for me of, if you're going to tell your story, which is the best place to start, if you're ever going to speak in addition to doing what I do, which is comedy, I had to start from where I was at. And a lot of that was talking about, like, cause I'm talking about my family already on stage. So then I talk about my dad 
and how he was a, a drunk and he was abusive to us verbally and just ignored us and very negligent dad. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, I mean, I talk about that and how it took me until he was already dead when I finally forgave him. Yeah. But it was, and I never got an apology. I never got the explanation. I never got, but when I forgave him, it was like I unlocked a prison cell and let myself out. You know, mm-hmm. there was like, there's a freedom that comes from it. And so I usually teach on that because I feel like in church, there's so much um, unforgiveness. Yeah. And, and we wonder why we're unhappy, but it's because we feel right. We feel justified in holding on to these dumb little things. And it's this, it's the blockage to spiritual things. Um, so I don't know. That's what I teach on. No, it's so true. I think just the general principle of that is, is that, you know, we are so rule-based in our mind. Whatever God says, we try to we're, – we're like children still. Well, you know, my daughter will ask. She wants to know if I say, hey, listen, you know, you've had enough sugar for today. You know, well, can I have three more M&Ms? Yeah. Well, how about two? Like, you know, she's going to negotiate to find like right. some, sort of, some sort of rule or, or legalism in a childish way. How, how, how close can I get as if what I was saying to her wasn't a principle for her good, yeah. but rather I'm just arbitrarily making up things to let her not have what it is that she wants. And that whole, the forgiveness, I mean, honestly, is the, is the centerpiece of Christianity. It's even what set it apart from Judaism. And Jesus is saying, look, okay, all of that prepared you for this. Yeah. And here's the new commandment I give you. That you love one another as I love, and that includes, and so you know, almost everything he said was was, was the same thing in different applications. Yeah. Forgiveness being one of those. Right. Look, don't. He's not saying, you know, he's saying the principle of forgiveness is is and it, it, for for you to understand what's actually been given. Mm-hmm. Then my expectation of you is that you are freely giving it as well as it just as much as it was freely given to you. Yeah. And so, but the deal is, that's not him saying, we want to go, well, yeah, but if that person did me this wrong, can I have the two M&Ms? What about, what about one? Like we, yeah. we keep trying to dial down and the bottom line is I'm doing that so she is healthier and that the, and that every command, every, every directive, when we begin to trust God, if the, the real question is, is, do we think they're for our good? If I don't understand it, sure, yeah. that's fine. Say he doesn't understand it. That's Okay. I always ask her, hey, let me ask you a question. Do you think that I want good for you or bad for you? Like that's the real question of of faith. Do you actually believe that when I tell you something, it's for your good or for your bad, whether you understand it completely or not? And that's where we get out of whack feeling that we're qualified to to say, well, sure you want good for me, but I understand better. And and so then it, it makes us feel insulted, you know. To, yeah. But yeah. God knows better. I mean. Yeah, I'm doing this. Uh, I've been on a diet since I was in my teenage years of some kind probably. So that's just the thing. I've always struggled with my weight. But it's like that this thing I'm doing now is more it's like psychology based almost. And so it'll have these things you have to go through every day. You read these little things about the psychology of weight loss and psychology of your habits. Yeah. And so it kind of trains you to ask different questions. And, st- and so like what you were talking about is totally me. Cause like when I enter a diet, I'm always thinking the first thing I think is, okay, I could do this, but what, it, what's going to happen when I cheat or like, how often can I have a cheeseburger right. on this diet? So I'm already thinking of this thing instead of thinking, what if I wasn't addicted to cheeseburgers? Yeah. What if I didn't have to have a French fry to live? Yeah. You know, what if I liked fruit? You know what I'm saying? Instead of chasing the ideal, I'm like trying to think of what what's the back door to this? What, right. How do I escape? How can I take these things, benefit from them, yeah. yet not change? Yeah. Right. And so I'm starting to try to ask those n- new questions and say, okay, well, can I imagine another way of living? And so that's it's been good for me, but it's it's been a process for sure. So I've been on keto for about four months. I know. You were so, yeah. so funny. And, and it's because this happened to me today. Yeah. And the deal is I just – so I'm a huge ice cream guy. You know that. Yeah. Like I love ice cream yeah. and I'm a huge French fry guy. Mm. Love that. I've had one French fry in four months. Wow. And I just had it the other day just to taste one. I was like, I wonder how that's going to taste now. If right. it tastes different. It was one on Sadie's plate. But the deal is what's crazy for me because, dude, I have a food problem. I mean, there's no doubt. It doesn't matter, <sighs> big or small. I eat for a lot of unhealthy reasons, you know, sometimes. And I think it's okay to feast and it's okay to have all those things. It's okay to celebrate with food. I think all that's fine. Yeah. But I celebrate Every day with yeah. food, you know, so th- right. at some point that's a problem. So, I, but now on this particular thing without the sugar, like I don't crave it. It doesn't mean it doesn't look good to me. It just means like usually if Sadie had a, had extra pancakes yeah, and she didn't eat them, like I gotta have them. 
Right, like I, it's clean plate club. Right, I gotta have them. Like there's no, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sitting here going, oh, that'd be nice. But yeah. now I'm, I look at them and go, well, those look good. But I'm just not. I'm, I'm full. I'm satisfied, and I, it's like it doesn't have that craving, you know. So today I took my buddy David to breakfast for his birthday, and he had pancakes, and they brought him an ice cream for his birthday. Right, and he really wanted me to like have the experience with him. Yeah. So I took a bite, one bite of a pancake, right. one spoonful of the ice cream Sunday. Mm, that's how it starts. And I have felt awful <laughs> all day. Well, you said you felt sleepy. Like it's really, really tired, like way more than usual. So I don't know if that like jolt of sugar put me on a crash or something, you know, that doesn't make but, any sense, but the, I, but the whole thing is, yeah, I don't, I find myself as long as my cholesterol can come down, all those things. Yeah, I find true. myself not like going what you're saying. What if I just don't? Like, what if, like, yeah. not that I never have ice cream again, but I have had ice cream for 40 years. Like, it's not like I'm being denied an experience. Right. You know? I mean, dude, he, I had it, like, it is a as great, a newborn. It is a great experience. So, but you it, had ice cream as a newborn? <laughs> I said 40 years, so the whole time. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mom. I appreciate it. Uh, She's so the weird. best mom ever. So <laughs> <laughs> She's giving me spoonfuls. Oh, my god. No, gosh. but you know what I'm saying? I've had experiences of food, and I'll have them again. But what if, like, experiences of food yeah. were not such a big deal to me? And I think that's where you're getting at. What if What if we just changed? Yeah, and, what if I saw food as fuel? Yeah. Like those people who they, they eat to live instead of live to eat. Yeah. Like even when somebody dies in the South, we're like, oh, my gosh, your Nana's gone. I'll make my seven-layer salad. Like yeah. there's a, immediately goes to food. <laughs> there's no hit stop. There's no comma there. Yeah. Well, food is – I think food for comfort's okay. It just can't be – yeah. coping mechanism feasting for, in heaven, for daily life. Yeah. There'll be ice cream in heaven. I, I think it's it's like even feasting should be in moderation. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It, uh, was it Laura the day that says very fascinating idea? Or was it you? I don't know. It was probably me if it was fascinating. Yeah, it probably was. <laughs> this, this idea that like even because I was talking about, well, you know, can we find a culture that just eats like we're eating keto right now? And she yeah. said, well, here's the deal. Whether you can find a culture that just eats high fat, high mm-hmm. protein, low carb – most cultures didn't have year-round food groups. Right. And that was a fascinating idea to me. Like, you wouldn't be eating fruit. You wouldn't be eating that kind of fruit in December. Right. Because it wasn't it's growing. It's not in season. Right. So we have access to seasonal things all year round exactly yeah. the same way. Is that We don't have a season anymore. Well, and not only that, we have fast food that's cheaper than a salad. Right. So we really messed ourselves up with that. When a oh. salad is five ninety nine and a double cheeseburger is 99 cents. Yep. What do you think is going to happen? Absolutely. When you and won't. then so the so the people who are yeah. poor eat terrible, and they don't have access to great health care because they're poor. Yeah. And, and it goes. It's a. It's like it's system. It's systemic. It's crazy. Was that? Was it? Uh, what was it? Forks over knives. I don't know. I, I watched. I, I'm not into the whole conspiracy yeah. completely, but there was a thing about they were following two families. Yeah. And a family trying to eat healthy on a low income in a grocery store like Publix. Yeah. Like they could afford like an apple, like the yeah. the kid the kids wanted the food. They were going, "Ooh, get this, get this!" And she was so they were showing you she was on the budget, right? In order for her to buy the food that her kids wanted to eat that was healthy, she could. There's zero chance she could afford it, yeah. especially if you wanted to be organic, you know, and pesticide free, and all these things that we want for our children. Like it was just easier to go to McDonald's. Right? You could go spend seven dollars and get seven hamburgers, and everybody. Eat. Well, that's what's happening with me. The past you know, umpteen years, I've been the, like the stepdad. You know, you hear about the stepdad that comes in the family and the kids are like, you're not my dad. And he's like, come on, let's go out for Burger King. <laughs> I've been my own stepdad, my <laughs> own negligent stepdad trying to impress myself <laughs> instead of being a good father to myself and giving myself salads. Wow. I don't even this know. This is deep, isn't it? I don't know if we could unpack that. That's that's good stuff. That's wow. Don't be a negligent stepdad to yourself. I took my kid to Culver's after school. Yeah, she she ordered a salad. She's starting to order salads and yeah. stuff now. Okay, took it home. We ate it, but you know what? She wanted the ice cream, and so I told her, "Well, if you have a good volleyball practice tonight, maybe uh-huh. we'll stop and get ice cream." And I'm yeah. thinking to myself, "You're rewarding her athletic achievements with ice cream," <laughs> and we stopped and got one. <laughs> And you know what? And she didn't get that good of a practice. You know, this is good. Speaking of, I didn't need to correct something. Oh, no. I do. I need to correct something. So I found out I was misinformed on our mm-hmm. last episode when I said when my daughter got her first medal that the coaches went and ordered They made it up or whatever. They made, made the medals up to reward the team. The truth is it was a real medal from the tournament that just didn't arrive 
until the next week. They mailed them to the coaches. Okay. So my daughter won a real medal. <laughs> it wasn't fake. It was in a real bracket. It was a real bronze bracket. Right, it was a medal. real bronze b- bracket. Everybody, not just her team, who uh-huh. won in their brackets got <laughs> the medals. And it wasn't like some fake thing. So, so not that she's heard this, but I just. Does I'll she just, listen? No. Say to you, listener. Okay. I think she has a few friends who listen, though. Oh well, that's terrific. So the deal is, you know, if she ever starts, if she ever starts listening, I have to stop talking. Like, uh, what, <laughs> I'm surprised I get to keep. That's true. Saying. You're telling all these objects. Like, <laughs> is that how I'm being manipulated? <laughs> oh my god! You're giving all your she's parenting gonna, secrets away. She's gonna get it all, and she's smart enough to apply. Yeah. she knows exactly. Man, I, I think that I would be. That's the thing, you know. I don't have kids, and if you're listening and you don't know this, I don't have kids, and so I'm always weir- weirded out by that. Like. What kind of dad would I be? Would I be that reward for nothing dad? Would I be that? Like, like we're going for ice cream? Because, look, I want ice cream. <laughs> I am that dad. You know, here's the thing. I never I also feel weird about about rewards in general. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I don't necessarily think it's all bad. No. I'd say that thing about the stepdad, but it's not all bad. There is a – my mom used to give me uh, – she'd pay me for every A on my report yeah. card, and I would get, like, cash – for an A. It is, I think that's okay. Well, I got that too. And it's necessary for motivation at certain ages, I will tell you that. Yeah. It's necessary to, to move them forward. Incentivize. Yes. I think that that's fine. It and does, that's real world. There, yes. she, when she gets in the real world, there's going to be incentives in her job Although for I working hard. Although I also want to say to her sometimes, like, yeah, but A's are just normal for you. Yeah. So I'm giving you a reward for what you should just think of as normal. I don't you like know, that. And that. I think that, you're being that's too Well, hard. I mean, here's the deal. A's, A's don't have to be. They're not normal for it takes a while. My kid doesn't have to do that, but I know her potential. I'm a teacher. I spend time with the kids all the time, and I'm going, okay, this kid, an A is pretty normal if she right. just puts her average effort in. Um, so, but, uh, but I also love rewarding my kid, like regardless, yeah, that's of, true. regardless of her performance. See, that's biblical too. And it is. You love giving gifts to your kid. I give, I give gifts to my kid whether she deserves it or not. I'm never going to not – like she'll say, oh, you're going to take that away. Now, look, I will take away your cell phone or whatever if there is a behavior that is, you know, okay, hey. Hey, there's, you're grounded for the next 24 hours from that or whatever. That's yeah. fine. But also sometimes just give her stuff. Like yeah. I just want to give her I – don't, I don't need her to – I never want her to think that this is that – I need help here. Like I need, I need help. That, there's that weird line. Like my love is so unconditional and yeah. even my gifts are unconditional. Your stewardship of certain things yeah. will – will create consequences that are positive and negative in your life. And I have to help her learn that balance, you know? Yeah. But I never want her to think, well, I didn't do the dishes, so therefore dad's not going to buy me a burger. You know, like, it's like, okay, you're in my house. You get everything. Like, it should be so abundant. And so knowing where right. to limit. But if you want two burgers. If you want two burgers, you're going <laughs> to make daddy. It's going to hurt her volleyball game. <laughs> a couple of burgers down the line. Trust me. I'm not very good at volleyball, for instance. Food in here's the other thing. We, yeah. don't, we don't talk about weight loss at all. And we've really changed our even un- thought process of it. We're not doing keto just to lose weight. Right. We're doing keto to become healthier. I, certainly my blood sugar is stronger in terms of not having, not stronger. It's Let's stronger. start. My vocabulary <laughs> is better. <laughs> My blood sugar can beat up your blood sugar, pal. I don't have blood sugar spikes and drops in the middle yeah. of the day like I used to. You know, I'm way more regulated than that. And for for January, writing on that manuscript, that was huge for me. Like, yeah. I could write for 10 hours and not have some huge drop. Like, yeah. normally at 2 or 3 o'clock, I'm just, you know, I feel like I did today. Like, I got to have, you know. Yeah. So, well, it's that salty sweet roller coaster that you get yeah. on, too, if you're doing the sugar in your diet a lot. Yeah. It's like you have the salty, you're like, hmm, something. Some oh, sweet after gosh. this, and then you have the sweet, and you're like, I need mm, some free toast. More. <laughs> <laughs> or you find yourself dunking the French fry in the ice cream. That's oh, I can do that's that. That's when you know you're out of control, dude. That's great. That right there, take a waffle fry. Or people that pour the, pour the M and M's into their popcorn. You ever do that? Curry used to do that. And I'll put. Oh, we'll we'll put sweet things on the popcorn. It's weird. My wife, dude, popcorn. We can, that's one thing we've lost is popcorn, and that's a hard one at the movies. Yeah. Well, the thing about keto that weirds me out uh, is fruit. You can have berries. And a stuff. diet have, that you have, can't have an apple on is really weird to me. We have we have in limited doses. Uh, I just think fruits fruits good. God put it here. You should be able to eat it. I could see me when this ends. I don't mean my life. I mean God put weed here too. So I guess that's a right. really that yeah. argument could go way on down the line. Yeah, people always say that. You know, well, you know, a lot of that, a lot of the drugs that we take are natural. I was like, yeah, so is poison ivy. You, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of natural. So you're things. saying weed is a product of the fall? So, is that where you're going theologically? So, well, I don't think it would have broke out with poison ivy before you the think, fall. Wait a minute. Is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Wait a minute. Johnny, Is I, that what you're saying? 
I'm not not only am I not saying I'm that, creating a whole other heresy so for you. This yeah. is someone's gonna sound bite this I can't and go wait. to the airwaves. If we were important enough for someone yeah. to sound bite us, be great go to problem? the airwaves. Wow. Remind me when it happens that yeah. I said it was gonna it's be a great problem. Yeah, okay, so I gotta get to my story because we haven't we're still on Ask Johnny and John. John and John. Are, are we? Is it Johnny and John? John and Johnny. Does it really matter, John? I, so the bombing. Uh, it happens. Your favorite comedian has bombed. Uh, I promise you, the best comedian you've ever seen has had a hard time at some point. They've run into a crowd, even late into their career. Um, I travel with a guy named Tim Hawkins who uh, did a show a couple of years ago, and it was uh, for the Optometry Society. It was uh, optometrists. Wow. And he was like, all right, this one big optometrist loved him, huge fan. They're going to love you. They paid him a huge chunk of money. He comes in. It was him and then ZZ Top. Wow. He goes into the venue. It's this standing room venue Ooh. with like pub tables in the back. They're so standing they're talking, in the they're talking the whole time. Oh, no. He goes out and just dies a slow death for 45 <laughs> minutes, does his time, gets off stage. He's lost six pounds probably. And then ZZ Top comes out. And it just goes to show you never know like what yeah. you don't know. And like he does ticketed events, his own fans show up and it's like, it's like a rock show. It's unbelievable. Wow. Standing O's, but you go into this one scenario. So it happens. But when you start out, it happens a lot because nobody cares about you. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody set you up for success. And you're not yeah. good yet. So you really don't know how to get out of a jam. Yeah. Like if I get into a bad crowd now, I at least have a couple of like moves. Yeah. You know, before checkmate, I can go like, okay, let me try this. Oh, didn't work. Oh, let me try this. Yeah. When you start out, you're just like, here are my jokes. And if you don't like me or them, we're done. <laughs> and uh, so you take, you say yes to everything. And that's the first part that gets you in a jam when you start out. You say yes because you think, well, I've had a couple of good experiences. I can get it. This seems like it's going to be difficult, but come on. Right. It's like if your jokes have been a tall enough ladder to get you out of whatever hole. It gives you this false sense of belief. They're like, well, it'll always be a tall enough ladder. No, it won't be. And so I got asked to do this. Talk about Reggie Dabbs. I got asked to do this event with Reggie Dabbs. I've been in comedy a year. They're like, come on out. It's a youth thing. Because Reggie goes and speaks in schools, and he doesn't talk about his faith. But then he does a rally in that same city. Right. Then he can share his faith. That's the rules of the whole school system. So he's, oh, come on. He's been in three different schools. It's going to be 1,000 kids at this gym, at this high, at this middle school. Mm. And so I go out. This youth pastor has seen me perform before and loved me and said, you're going to be great. So I get there, and he goes, okay, we're going to do some giveaways. Then I thought, you come out and do like 10 minutes. I go, oh, you brought me all this way for 10 minutes. Okay, whatever. Because by then, I thought I probably had an hour, and I probably had about 15 minutes. I was like, I can do whatever you want. He goes, do about 10 minutes, then Reggie's going to come out. I go, that soon? He goes, yeah. Reggie will do his thing. He goes, you know, I noticed Reggie does these things where kids will go back to, for prayer, and they'll have the, some of our youth leaders will go, and they'll take kids out of the room to pray with them. Then there's all these kids who didn't respond, and they're just sitting there for like 20 minutes. Well, I thought you could come out then. Oh, my gosh. And do some more comedy. Altar call comedy. Altar call comedy. Wow. And so... I was like, well, this seems sure. I just, I didn't want to say no. You're afraid of, if you say no, it's like you're, you're shutting out an opportunity or you're, you're showing them that you don't have confidence in yourself. Yeah. And then the whole thing is off. Cause then you're like, oh, this, this guy doesn't know if he can do it. Maybe I shouldn't hire you. Yeah. And I probably made 50 bucks or something anyway. So I come out, I do 10 minutes. It was fine. I did, I did pretty well. And then Reggie comes up and he's a very, it's like a, it's a, it's heavy. Some of the oh, stuff he's yeah, talking Reggie's about. Oh, yeah, Reggie's story is pretty... Yeah. And then, sure enough, man, a hundred or so kids leave, and now there's 900 kids left in this gym. In tears, probably. And, I, and they go, ladies and gentlemen, John, Johnny's going to come. And so <laughs> I come back out, and I try to get into this stuff, and it was just not happening. And I'm telling you, I sweat through my entire shirt. <laughs> and then, and what's the worst part is, like, Reggie's a buddy, but at that point, I'd only been doing comedy a year, and he kind of was like, well, that's cool you're pursuing this. He knew me. But he watched that happen to me, and then I was his ride home. <laughs> I was his ride back to Nashville. And so we kind of got to sit in the car, and it was him being like, well, that was tough. Like, he didn't, he didn't like, candy coat it for right. me, which I appreciate now. But Did he you goes, see your first set, though? He kind of tried to pretend that they were tough for him. to. Yeah, they were kind of tough for me. I was like, Reggie, they loved you. They hated yeah, you. Reggie's never it's, met a tough guy. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a definitely a learning experience of, like, don't, don't say yes to everything. And set your terms and defend, like defend your right to have the show go the way that you want it to go. Yeah. Like if you can check, if there's 10 things that make a good show, the lights being low, the mic working properly, et cetera. If you have 10 things, at least make them do seven of them. Yeah. Don't walk out with zero of them. 
like I did, where it was like the kids are a million miles away from me and there's gym lights on and an altar call has just happened. Like it's like there used to be a thing where they would say, don't play. I would say to them because they would be I would go to these events for like compassion or there would be a, a, a speed of light thing and they would want to show their missions video yeah. with like starving kids. Yeah. You know, that's like, not we've a got good... to meet the need. Do you care or not? And now to make us laugh, and Johnny, then, yeah. and you just go, oh no. So now I kind of I can go in, and I've got a little bit not pet. I wouldn't say pedigree, but I have a history where people can go. Well, this will be good if we do this right. So I can kind of tell them my conditions. Don't make sure if it's a food event. Make sure they're done eating. People don't laugh with full mouths. Yeah. So like I make that demand, but all of that's because you've had a million bad experiences, and you go, well, this will go terrible if you do this, and they believe you. Yeah. You know, uh, now. But back then, you just say yes. Well, and I, I've been with you when you've had that talk yeah. many, many times. Yeah. I try to be gentle. Yeah, I hope you, I come off no, that No, you way. are. What, it always comes off to me is that what you're saying to them is, I really care about your event. Yeah. You should trust me that I'm going to tell you a few things that are make sure your event's successful. Yeah. It's not about, I don't want to bomb or don't put me in a bad place. It's a, if you put, if you will listen right now, because I do this every night, right. then you're going to you're going to have a more successful whatever your goals are yeah. they'll be met we'll have a better chance of meeting them well that's what i'm learning too is as you do like this it's 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 also like even when you sell merch c- comedians ask me about merch cuz i have pretty good merch numbers so they'll be like well what's the secret to a funny t-shirt what's the secret to whatever and the secret is don't make it about you the the person who is buying you be it be it a event planner or a person who's buying your shirt all the way on the, across the spectrum. They care about themselves. Mm. So, for instance, I have a shirt that says, my love language is sarcasm. I have one that says, uh, I don't speak Latin per se. When they buy that shirt, they're not like, I think Johnny's funny, I'm buying this shirt. They're imagining themselves next day at work wearing that shirt and getting a laugh. Yeah. And so if you don't have an idea that will give that reaction to somebody, where they're imagining themselves at the water cooler being funny themselves, you, they will not buy your shirt. They don't care about your career. And the person who booked you, they might love you and they might know you. But once you get doing this long enough, they don't care about you. What they care about is a successful event on their docket. Yeah. They want to go into the staff meeting Monday morning and be like, did I tell you this guy was going to be good? Yeah. And then like smiling ear to ear as everyone claps. That's what they're imagining. And if you can't give them that, so that's why I fight for it. Because I know that they care about themselves a little bit. And that's okay to be a little bit. Like you don't want to look like a schmuck for bringing me in. Well, they're 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 stewards of the moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They're they're managers of that. And, yeah, and you're exactly right. And when people can, and again, yeah, you do. I feel like you always come across in that way because they always listen to you. Yeah, because I, I mean, so. most people who are bringing you in, I would hope, are doing an event at the size. It's not their first rodeo of yeah. the event, and so they are going to know to. Well, listen I try to, to be artists. extra. Like I try to carry myself in a humble way because I feel like if you some of these events I do have had big time artists come in now. Like I'm doing a couple of music festivals this year and they deal with people who they've had every experience across the gamut where it's like, I know I'm the best thing since sliced bread because my song's on the radio now. Or somebody like Stephen Curse Chapman, who's been a signature artist for 40 years. And you wouldn't know, like when I met Phil Keggy, I couldn't believe it. He was yeah. like remembering my name and, you know, he, he was so sweet and he wanted to hear every story I had that linked to his music. I said, you're not going to, I know you've heard this before. He's like, no, tell me. I was like, well, we played your song at my at my uh, wedding, like we played it at the reception. He was like, that is so neat. Like he really cared. And I remember that to this day. So yeah. I try to be that. Yeah. And it, it, sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes you'll get taken advantage of because you're the humble guy. You go in and they'll be like, well, this guy doesn't care. So I'm not going to care about his monitor mix. Yeah. But sometimes you, there's a blend to how you do both. You can fight for the show, but not fight for yourself. No, absolutely. You know? And you know, if there are going to be things that we lose when we're humble and we're yeah. supposed to, you know, yeah. like there's just, there should be a degree of loss to to the disposition yeah. that we go. I don't want to, I want to always win every situation. That means something's wrong. Yeah. Same. It's the same principle as beware when everyone speaks well of you. Like, yeah. you know, if, if, if I never ruffle a feather mm-hmm. or if all I do is get my way either, either way, then at some point in time, maybe I'm not either. I'm not standing up for something that matters at all ever. <laughs> I never say anything that matters because everyone agrees with me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just I'm just being a politician socially. I'm just a social politician at that point. Yeah. Uh, or you know, on the other side, if I'm always getting my way, then I'm just dominating and I'm You're never, steamroller. Yeah, yeah, I'm never open to it. So I think I think the balance is right. Yeah, you can't. I don't. It, 
if we're supposed to be a like there's even in Christian circles now there's the whole thing of like let's not be doormats. God didn't call us to be doormats. It's like I think we're supposed to be closer to the doormat side of things than we are the steamroller side. Yeah. Like if it's a spectrum, you're not yeah. supposed to let harm necessarily uh, come to you at the you know at the expense of other people or at the expense of the gospel, but this idea that like God called me to stand up for myself. Like, I don't know about all that. Like, yeah. <clears throat> when, when we're counseling, it's a, it's a real, you're exactly right. Now, look, in terms of our generosity, in terms of what we do, I mean, Jesus said, you know, if your enemy asks you for your, right. co- for your coat, like yeah. he wasn't just saying a friend, not just a, str- a stranger, but your enemy asks you for right. something, give them that and more. So there is, that's the, that's that doormat yeah. side. But the flip side is in relationships. Yeah. It's, it's uh, what we do say is, look, it's healthy for you. You are actually loving that person better yeah. when you don't allow yourself to be in some codependent position, a relationship where you're a doormat and they never get to grow because you never, you never have the courage to step up, which is going to honestly have to be for yourself yeah. to say, Hey, these are my boundaries and they're healthy. And here's why. I mean, the book of Proverbs is all about boundaries and relationships, you know, and in the workplace and in politics and all around to say, this is the wise way to conduct myself. And this is the foolish way. And sometimes that's going to, but it, if you look at it, it's about, the wise man is he is gaining he's gaining a good reputation he's yeah. gaining riches in in proverbs he's gaining so there is a self gain that comes through that behavior but so like when i lose i want it to be intentional because i'm losing out of an attitude for the gospel but i shouldn't be sitting around in relationships that are supposedly gospel centered already yeah and be losing accidentally because i don't have a, the proper boundaries to to or the courage even to express them to say look Loving you well is probably saying this is hard to hear, but these are my boundaries. So I think that there's, I think to me that's that line, whether it's a stranger yeah. or a you know a person that you know in a relationship. Yeah, it's a tough thing. And like I'm, uh, I was thinking yesterday or two days ago about this because we went to Memphis for uh, a Lakers game, Lakers versus Grizzlies. So we were there and we were had a couple hours to kill. Well, right next door to the the forum where they play is this. Um, is this museum? It's the rock and roll, not rock and roll. It's uh, rock and blues museum, blues, rock and soul yeah. museum. Yeah, and so we go through, and you just start realizing like the poorest people, and it was like across even cultural lines. These sharecroppers who were black and white, the country music and the blues music, uh, and the Negro spirituals, like it blended together to create this own kind of music. And even the label, the early label, started with an eye on diversity without even not for diversity's sake just because that's how it was because the the, what they had in common was poverty Mm. and then you start along racial lines like rock and roll was this this thing and soul music was this thing that brought healing and it came out of this turmoil this awful thing that you would never choose for yourself and i started thinking about that like i told curry that we were walking back to the hotel and i said we think about the beautiful things we've that we've been made in our life and most of it would not have ever come about without struggle yeah. But we would never choose the struggle. So we've spent all of our lives and our parents spent their lives trying to make sure we didn't. So we struggled less than they did. And now we have this generation that doesn't struggle. And our art, for the most part, sucks. Right. And it's like we would never choose to go back to a struggle. But it's like there's something beautiful that comes out of it. And I don't I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Yeah. But it's this weird thing. And I think that's what happens. Like, Think about the, your favorite artist that released a, a record. And then the second record, they're rich. And <laughs> right. it's, it stinks. They're writing, the writing is, it's different yep. because now they're living in a mansion. It's weird. They're writing to preserve what they have now instead of writing yeah, it's a from their experience. Or they're writing out of the pressure. I don't hear another oh, single. Gosh, I yeah. got to hear another single on the radio. It's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. No, that's so true. And I, I think you can't, you can't mitigate. If you think you don't have the pain or the struggle, the bottom line is usually, and there's a great book we can talk about in the next episode. There's a great book about that, about the distracted culture yeah. and how we literally can't let ourselves feel the struggle. We actually have it. We just don't know how to feel it. We can't, we can't let ourselves. Yeah. We put the filter of privilege and whatever wealth or whatever you would call that right. thing. We put, we look at it through that lens, but really it's, there's turmoil in everybody. That's the thing is you try to tap into a comedy is it's just being professionally a little bit more irritated than the next person. Right. That's how you write a joke. Yeah. The, you know, the thing that somebody else wouldn't notice, I'll be like, why does that happen? Yeah. And so you, you stay irritated a little bit, but not right. like to the point of hopefully not the point of rage, but that's really all it is. 
Which I think is a great place. We hope that you've been irritated today. <laughs> just a little bit. Just enough to be creative. Just enough. No, it's so true. There's, so many, there's a lot of beauty in the struggle. So, yeah, sometimes the thing we're running from is the thing that's going to uh, produce something different in us. I love, I love that. We could talk about that that blues, that Memphis convergence of, of culture. For, I mean, that, that's fascinating yeah. to me. So, but we don't have time for that, Johnny. We're already at the end of the of the episode. Right, we uh, we man, it was a good time to be answer. continued. Yeah, we'll actually always be back, Johnny, because we're so consistent now. We are. Yeah. So you can see when we're releasing on Mondays right now. So this episode will come out on Monday, and the next Monday, guys, just just go ahead and mark your calendars. Tell mm. your friends. Uh, now I feel the pressure that you were talking about. <laughs> we're going to gonna always make them on Mondays. But, hey, as always, we'd love for you to share and uh, leave comments and and give us uh, more questions you want us to answer on the air. So we did have a, a, a Twitter friend, uh, somebody who, who tweeted about uh, the podcast this week. I'm going to pull it up, Johnny. I'm going to give oh, her some I props. Yeah. I'm going to give her some props, yeah. Oh. So, I mean, you know, see, people people sometimes tweet. Let me go find it real quick. Oh, my god! Just real quick here on Twitter. Forever. It's going to be worth it. People are driving off it's embankments. Be, it's going to be worth it. It's Tracy Collier. She said, one of my favorite podcasts. If you haven't listened yet, check it out. And then she reposted uh, from the last episode. Thank you, Tracy. Send us more of your questions, comments, and be sure to go follow Johnny or follow me. Or go check out Johnny's comedy special. Go to Amazon and leave a review. Do Just kind of read one page on the Avid Indoors. It would help me so much. Please. Uh, get the book. It's going to be, hey, it's coming up for Father's Day, bro. It's going to be a great gift for Father's Day. So all you ladies out there thinking about what to give your men, hey. Mm. The ultimate guy for the Avid Endorsement will be a great addition to any bathroom or coffee table. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Talk About That. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.